Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're welcome to the Mickliffer Podcast with the Irish Examiner. No, the pandemic has wreaked havoc across all sectors of society, in terms of health primarily, but also it's impacted hugely on people's livelihoods. One of the worst hit sectors in that respect has been the arts, where artists, who for the most part have always struggled to make a living anyway, now find themselves completely without any income. Joining me to discuss the major challenges thrown up for the arts sector today is the Chair of the National Campaign for the Arts and CEO of First Music Contact, Angela Dorgan. Angela, you're welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? Angela, we'll talk about your own bellywick of the music industry soon, but just to start off with the National Campaign for the Arts, when and why did that come about? The National Campaign for the Arts is about nine years old um, and it was around the time that the arts just wasn't featuring in public discourse and wasn't featuring in any plans for recovery from the recession and just a repeated cutting, I suppose, death by a thousand cuts of funding to arts infrastructure. So I am, I think it's fifth chair. I might be wrong. We'd have to check that. So I suppose we've always reignited. It, it's been a force for many years but it's also uh, been reignited usually around a threat, which given that there's been a constant and consistent threat to funding and infrastructure over the last five years. So since I joined the committee, first of all, the voluntary committee, and then became chair about 18, 20 months ago, we've been consistently putting in pre-budget submissions, briefing TDs on the value of the arts sector and listening to and collecting data from the sector about their needs. And being an independent, a voluntary, um, but a sector-based voice for the arts in Ireland. And Angela, when you say there about five years ago, was there a change of tone then? Or was there a heightened worry on your part about funding and, and attention being given to the sector? I suppose the, the galvanising moment was when arts was taken out of the title for the department was a worrying enough moment. So that for me was the, I'd been involved in the NCFA uh, set up just as a, you know, volunteering my time and as a spokesperson from our particular sector. But I kind of got re-involved about four or five years ago when the previous, when Heather Humphreys got the position and arts disappeared from the title. And I think that was whatever fight we were having about uh, getting the, the infrastructure of the sector supported Certainly uh, an arts ministry that didn't have arts or culture in the title was a real fear for people being represented at government. And I suppose then for the last three years or four years, it has been, I suppose, making sure that plans that are made by government um, are kept to and that somebody is keeping them from the sector is keeping them accountable. So when roadmaps are promised to follow up on asking for those roadmaps to be delivered. Okay, and in general terms, and I, I think observing it, and I think anybody who would have any idea about it, is very difficult 
for artists to make a living in today's world. But if we could look at it just generally, prior to the pandemic, say take it up until February of this year, were you relatively satisfied with the type of progress that was being made in the area before the pandemic hit? No, absolutely not. So we have been consistently calling for a doubling of arts funding and specifically a doubling of funding to the Arts Council and Culture Ireland, who we would see as, and then local arts uh, offices and budgets, who we would see them as the vehicles to get funding to directly to artists, first of all, to make work, and then to arts workers and arts organisations to sustain and grow a sector that could make more work again for artists. Um, Along with that, you had uh, Theatre Forum did a study where uh, it showed that consistently over the last number of years, arts uh, is one of the poorest paid professions in the state and most artists were living below the poverty line. So we were in quite a scary state. We, we, we I suppose, were tr- about half, under half of, uh, between a third and a half of the European average uh, spend per GDP on uh, the arts sector. So we're very far behind for a nation that prides itself on um, uh, the brilliance of our artists and, and a nation of, of um, artists. And, and given that our tourism and our country sells itself on the amount of talent we have here, we, we were very poorly supporting that talent. Okay, just on that point, before we just deal with the pandemic, because it is interesting, you're saying between a half and a third of GDP of what the average in Europe is what do you put that down to? Is it a lack of representation politically? Is it a taken for granted type of attitude? Or like, for example, if you look at areas like sport, and you know we'd have a lot of, um, I think it would be fair to say, senior politicians who would have a major interest in sport, and a lot of money goes into sport. Is there a lack of many voices at the top of the body politic? For the arts, is, is that an issue or is it wider than that? I think it, that's one of the issues. I think it's like anything else in any country. It's it's a perfect storm, but not in a good way. So, for instance, you had parties who maybe didn't even have an arts policy. You had, depending on the politics and the right or leftness of a party in government, different measurements for, about the value of the arts. So, so we would argue, and I certainly personally would argue, that the arts are valuable to society and then they are also economically viable. So, you know, there have been so many reports, there's the Intercon report in 2011 that shows that for every euro invested in the arts, it comes back sometimes double to the exchequer. So, you know, if you think of most arts organisations or artists that are funded, you you still pay tax, you still pay income tax, venues are that registered, where festivals are that registered events are, you know, and then if you think of the tourist investment that it brings in. So for in, for my money, the economic argument has been made um, and we it's not something we need to keep having. But for me, the societal value of the arts for Ireland as a country and as a nation and as a republic, it was more evident in the pandemic than ever, but was also always evident for me. So we don't consistently ask ourselves, what's the value of education to a nation or what's the value of health then? I think in a in a perfect republic, and certainly in a republic that talks about themselves in a way that Ireland does, um, we should be talking about the value to society, and arts should never have to, you know, um, 
to to value itself in terms of economic growth strategies for businesses. Now, that's not to say that the arts shouldn't be uh, value compliant. I, we are very aware in all arts organisations that are funded by um, any instruments of the state are, are audit compliant. We audit once a year. Mm. We're far more audited and 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 aware of tax dollar spend and you know it's my brothers and sisters money that on my own income tax that I'm we're spending so it's you have to be value for money we're a sector that knows how to do that so I think we're a safe investment and then I suppose to your other question traditionally and I suppose there's an argument that since Michael D Higgins the typical portfolio holder has been someone who a, a party wants to test on the way up or um someone who has been given a kind a of a holding term. role or so something like a that. holding role and maybe a retirement role I don't know I mean that's that's external speak uh, but I I do think um for for that that the arts is a portfolio that needs to be fought for more but I think if you make the argument that the value of who we are as a people is the most important then it should stand the value of the art should stand and investment in that value should stand alone Absolutely. And I don't want to go down the route of uh, uh, pitting it against sport, for instance, but very often people just look at the two of them. It just occurs to me when you think about it uh, in in politics, we've had a lot of the likes of ex-footballers. Maybe we need a few more poets and the odd retired uh, musician or something along those lines to hopefully get a better appreciation of the value in society. Now, we come to the pandemic and... The arts sector has been hit a wallop far more than others, and that was very much illustrated in a report that was brought out there by an expert advisory group set up, including yourself and people like Lenny Abramson, Fintan O'Toole, and, which I found very interesting, Gabriel Scally, the public health expert. That report was produced in very quick time, Angela, and just a few details in terms of the some of the um, economic research that was done by consultant EY in relation to it. And that had figures such as uh, the negative impact of COVID-19 on the arts sector will be between 34 and 42% compared with 11% in the Irish economy, which shows you how much more. And then the decrease in the number of the jobs is projected at between 14.9% and 18% compared with 7% in the economy as a whole. We're talking there about between 1,500 and 1,900 arts jobs at risk. And one other thing that EY did state that the recovery of the sector may take until 2025 if nothing is done to mitigate the impacts of COVID-19. Now, in those terms, Angela, give me a couple of things you would suggest that should be done immediately. Well, this is is information we had guessed anecdotally and and just from hearing directly from our members um, who are artists, arts workers and arts organisations around the country. um, That 42% contraction that will hit our sector as opposed to an 11% contraction for the rest of the economy, that's because all the doors are closed. So if you think about the arts sector, every there isn't a sector in society and I don't want to at all dismiss the hurt um, and and the challenges to other sectors. But the art sector in particular, and in particular, again, the performance-based activity in the art centre has been decimated. 
And a huge proportion of it is performance-based, isn't it? A huge percent. Now, not all of it is, but a huge percent of art made is either for exhibition, performance or participation. So if you think of the last two of those, and to a very large extent as well, the exhibition of others, like if, I suppose, publishing, you know, maybe loads of bookshops aren't open, but, but books can go online. As restrictions ease, audio and visual can get back to some semblance of normal. But selling a gig, selling a, a play, selling any of that now, you can't do because what you're being asked to do and it's been pushed out again is either do it with 15% capacity or 30% capacity. So on budgets, budgets are squeezed anyway. So you'd be looking at uh, trying to pay arts workers, artists, performers, technicians out of what's 30% of a normal budget, which means first you would have to quadruple ticket prices, which won't work because you're asking an audience to participate in a reduced experience. Um, So you'd be going to the theatre, but the next person is 10 seats away or five seats away, or you'd be going to a venue and, you know, you you literally can't turn around to your mate and have that like eye contact you have during an amazing song or, you know, all of those restrictions. So both, both, I suppose, the esoteric, but also the financial implications of that are are huge and they're they ripple right through from the artist and maker right out to to those supporting the sector so along with having that that decimated so we were talking to artists arts workers and arts organizations and and we came up with a 13 point plan to first of all you need to stabilize that sector and give it a breathing space give the artists the arts workers and the organizations time to breathe take it all in and then plan in strategies, probably in quarters. So that's why immediately we called for a 20 million stabilization fund from, from government. So that was just to get to organizations and to artists through, through bursaries and through grants to arts organizations and to artists. For artists to continue making work that didn't have a prescriptive destination and for the organizations to be able to retain staff, retain excellence, retain all that talent. Uh, but also to make plans to pivot to their, you know, their users and and the people they work with. And then on from that, and this was, I suppose, the how you spend that money then was the, as you said, the big, the large work of that advisory group that uh, we set on. The second um, most important thing for us was the extension of the pandemic unemployment payment. And that was to keep everybody working in that sector available to work once the organizations and planning was able to happen and to keep those skills in the sector because if people look at to arts organizations or to festival or events and think nothing is going to happen in any way shape or form whether online or offline then they're going to have to find work elsewhere and they walk out with the you know 10 15 20 years knowledge infrastructure skills excellence um, and networks, and they, they leave the sector with them, that will leave the, the sector itself decimated. And you have artists who will need to leave the sector as well. And one thing about the pandemic payment, a, a lot of artists, when, when the cutback was made there for those who'd earned less than 350 a week prior to the pandemic, when their money was cut back, that would have affected a huge amount of artists because they were earning such low amounts of money. And that wouldn't necessarily reflect their general career way, but they could have last year, for instance, earned that level of money. 
Yeah, so we, in situations like that, the department have set up um, an email that you can find on the NCFA website uh, where if you have those particular experiences, the Department of Culture, um, now it's a far longer title than that that I'm not even um, (laughs) familiar with yet, but the Department of Arts, Culture, Sports, Tourism, Media, Media and the Gaeltics, but probably not in that order. and or as Waterford Whispers referred to it, the Department of High Fives. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they have a dedicated email where if you are encountering those problems, um, both the NCFA and the, and the, the uh, Mary Nash and the department will has been talking to the Department of Social Welfare and will have some fixes for those or some ways to address uh, those issues if you're meeting them on local level and actually... We're uh, on this Friday holding um, a, an update on that social welfare and those social welfare payments. We're hoping that the PUP extension will feature in the July stimulus. All the noises are being made in the right direction for that. Um, but if you are, if anybody listening to the podcast is having that experience, then we would urge them to get in touch with us um, or find that email for the department on um, the website because those conversations are happening. We're providing a a constantly updated memo to the department so that they can uh, provide it to the Department of Social Protection so that we can all work to reach the people who most need the support. Yeah, I mean, and just to take this down to anecdotal level, because it, it just occurred to me there a couple of years ago, because I remember specifically thinking this. I was at, I think it's the theatre out in Dunleary and um, Miguel Murphy's show, The Man in the Women's Shoes, was on. And I have a specific recollection of sort of halfway through this, this thought occurring to me. I, I've, in my work, I go down to the courts and I cover people in the doll and you see barristers and politicians and they get up on their feet and they make speeches and they do this and that. I was looking at this thing and it occurred to me, there's a touch of genius about that man, Murphy. There, there is something, no, and I don't want to single him up, but just, he's just one example, that, that, he, that, that his imagination that he put together a show like that. And uh, perhaps he's doing all right, but the likes of people who are in that situation, performing artists, they might do well for one show, they can struggle for years, they go from hand to mouth. And that whole aspect of the arts that occurred to me is so underappreciated. And it would also occur to me that in times like these, when there's big economic catastrophe, I would venture that without serious representation, like from people like yourself, that they're the sectors that are going to get walloped worse. Yeah. And and it is traditionally the sectors who don't speak up do get walloped the worst because they don't have a voice. So that's, you know, I suppose that's why the other campaign that the NCFA ran was a hearts and minds campaign because what we wanted to do was we wanted to remind the public that no arts means no books, no films, no galleries, no music, no. And can you imagine your day? I used to do this talk to students where I'd say we had a two day thing. And I, I would say, if you can go home, just leave this room, go directly to your house and come back in here in the morning. And if you can do any of that without experiencing art, I will write you a check for 100 euro. See, I think, Angela, the thing is people don't, See it that way. You're absolutely right, but it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult message to get across. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? And it took a pandemic. I'm, I'm kind of chatting to everybody about the COVID bounces because I'm, you know, a traditional, you know, as a person, I'm a glass half full person. Anyway, and even if you knocked my glass over onto the table, I'd be like, well, the water's still on the table. Um, but uh, I, I would think that the bounce from this is people immediately saw 
how important the earth were because there's so many people who are isolating on their own, people who are isolating with kids, people who are isolating in situations with older um, people in, in, in some isolated areas. Every single one of us turn to the earth for comfort and I suppose we our campaign that actually Lenny um because he was on the the um uh, he and I were on the task force together Lenny and uh um Ed said Guiney in, in element pictures Ed Guiney yeah and um we made an ad that then they got put in the last um episode of normal people and RT very generously gave us uh, the ad slots under the RT supporting the arts. So, and we've had that experiences in Cork, in Dublin. People are just giving us poster sites for free, and every opportunity we get, we're using the hashtag Save the Arts. Because if you think about whose hearts and minds you have to change, it's every single person in this nation has to value the arts. Because the other story here isn't about just commercially funding the sector to exist, although that is really important. It's also reminding people that art isn't free to make and that when you Mm. get the opportunity to, you should pay for the art you receive. There are loads of people doing online concerts. Go and buy a ticket. And and I suppose we have to avoid this getting... um, we have to get away from thinking art is free. It shouldn't be free to experience because it's not free to make. As you said, you know, there there are fantastic artists in Ireland who die paupers because there's no questioning their genius. We just didn't have the structures in place to make sure that they were funded to make work. And, and I don't know any amazing artist who writes a book or a song or a play to make money. They write it because it's in them as a story to tell. Um, then the commerce is the benefit of not having to do other work so that they can make art all the time. And if they can make art all the time, then it's us as a society benefit. So yeah, I, I think I, in the, the pandemic has, has woken us up to that. Absolutely. And just referring back to the report you did, the expert advisory report, there was one quote, you've, you've quoted various artists. And I just thought this is interesting in terms of one aspect of the issue. This was a quote from an artist called Kate O'Shea and it, it went as follows. I am concerned about the arts becoming less accessible. In a world of social distancing, those on the margins are being pushed further away. Instrumentalisation of the arts for other agendas could heighten and we need non-exploitative ways that the arts can be part of imagining and practising alternative ways of being together. Now, one thing I take from that, Angela, is that in where everything is being squeezed like that, are those, for example, at the lower ends of the socioeconomic ladder going to be put in a position where the arts becomes less accessible to them at the local level in particular where it can be so important? Well, I would argue that the, the that the argument for participation in art making and arts audiences should be equally accessible to all. So, so you know, I'm I'm working class. Half the people I know who make art are. Um, so I suppose it's the the instrumentationalizing. There is something I'd really that really echoes with me. I think you if you're going to fund a sector. You have to fund them to know what it is that their particular area of the sector needs. What does that mean exactly? Instrumentalisation of the arts. What exactly does that mean? So I suppose um, some would argue that. Uh, yeah, some would argue that. Can you hear me? Gone. Oh, um, there, there are some that would argue that, uh, you know, when you put a, a, a measurable outcome um 
as a, a codicil to a funding application that you instrumentalize. It's to make art so that. Whereas our argument would be, you know, funding for um, for activities should be the activity of making. Um, and, and that's what most, to be fair, Arts Council and local arts office funding instruments are for. So I would say that that's a reaction to the initial um, uh, the initial support that came from the department was an extra 500,000 for online work. And I think people thought, what if my work can't be can't go online? You're instrumentalizing your support to me because you're saying I have to make something that then reaches an online audience. But I think for the socioeconomic question, um, you it's it's how good the art or the idea is that should be funded and not the postcode from whence it's funded. Um, and I think similarly, uh, the idea of, um, you know, it, it's, it's a well-dead idea that theatre and music and all of that are only for people with enough money. There are enough tickets and events that are um, really low, lowly ticketed so that uh, lots of people can participate in it. Could we turn to your own bailiwick of music, First Music Contact? Uh-huh. What exactly do you do? So First Music Contact are a resource organisation for, um, I suppose it's easier to describe who we don't work with. So, um because there is such a large cohort, but we are um, there are a number of resource organisations that are funded as strategic organisations from the Arts Council. Um, IMC uh, support uh, jazz and music. CMC support uh, contemporary composers. Music networks support tours uh, from um, classical and trad um, uh, performances around the country, and they also. Um, are the uh, home for music generation um, and then first music contact resource what would be uh, makers so artists original artists from so for everything from bands to indie to hip-hop to uh, singer-songwriters folk uh, electronic all of the other um, uh, musical genres and we as a resource organization have developed a continuum of care of uh, programs to support the professionalization of the artist. And then more recently, we've supported the setup of uh, representative organizations for the professionals who support that infrastructure. So managers, publishers, labels um, in the independent music sector in Ireland. So, for example, I sit out in my garage with my acoustic guitar and I write five or six brilliant songs and I realise the world needs to know about this. I go to you and you tell me, well, you need to talk to A, B and C, you need to do this, that and the other to get going. So we do free consultancy. So we'll start and and help. First of all, we'll tell you how scary the music industry is and try and scare you away because it is a horror, you know, it is a, a cruel and shallow money pit, as Hunter S. Thompson said. Um, and then we'll sit with you and we'll make a professional development plan with you. And then uh, a number of our activities then fit in at the key strategic moments of that plan. So, for instance, the five songs you've just written in your garage that you want people to listen to, you can go on to our website, breakingtunes.com, and join 16,500 other artists from uh, the island of Ireland. So it's we're a 32-county organisation. Uh, and you pick your genre, you put up your four tracks, you write a little about yourself, you add your photos, 
um, and that's your that's your electronic press kit. Mm. So you then use that as you know where you send people to have a listen to. You put your socials up there so that you can link, and then you that's your first engagement in the rest of the music community. So say it, there's an area then where we'll ask you, okay, what type of artists are you? Are can you point us to say four or five? Irish and four or five international artists who you sound like so then when you put those tags in your own page you can then search the rest of those 16 and a half thousand profiles for people who have said the same thing now the active number there so the you know amount of people who have either added something or edited their page in the last four weeks that's five thousand so for us it's five thousand working acts or solo musicians or bands in our sector on the island right now. The thing about it is, is um, and in particular in terms of music, so we, we come along, we have uh, Spotify, we've Google, we have effectively a scenario whereby people who record music no longer can really make much money off it. It's all down to live performance and live performance in the time of pandemic is simply off the agenda. That's a real double whammy. It's bad enough, first of all, that the traditional model of, of, of earning money off your recordings is gone. The traditional model is is gone. Um, and that went, as you say, before the pandemic. And now the model of, you know, that ability to sell your T-shirts and tickets has also gone to a point. I mean, music, again, with the COVID bounce, you can go online, but we haven't yet uh, made putting your music online fair to artists it's fair to the tech companies it's fairer uh, you have you know all of these tech companies selling ads around your music and they don't pay, pay you fairly so that's again another conversation we at FMC would have where one of the activities we do is where the Irish Music Export Office um, called Music from Ireland and in that role we sit with 27 other countries on um, an export group called MA. And MA, with all the managers from across Europe and all the labels from across Europe, are constantly pushing the European Commission to uh, pass what we call Article 13, which is making the tech companies pay up uh, and pay artists fairer for using their music alongside um, to sell ads. Um, you know, and to just, we're not asking them for any more than the fair share of that income that they're making from the ads because those ads are being made in a large part uh, in the online world from music, original music. Absolutely. And I think it's well recognised it's horrible injustice is done there to musicians. The other side of the coin, the fact that the record companies are no longer gatekeepers. Do, is there an upside to that in that regard that it might be easier to get your stuff out to a market so to speak than it used to be previously or, or am I grasping at straws there? There's a straw there but the, the music industry is 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 still to a large part there are still major labels there are maybe three now instead of six um, but what you do have I suppose is um a, a bigger middle class of independent labels um, and independent agents. And you, you still have the larger agents uh, who run most of the fields. But what the internet has brought, I suppose, is as you can do, uh, and this is what we prepare artists for, if you can't find a home for your music in a major or a large indie, there are ways you can 
Mm. Run a living on your own. And that's where we come in and, and organizations like us around the world where we support your professionalization. And we believe that, you know, people keep forgetting that it's the music industry and that the industry is the second half of that phrase and not the first half. Um, and, and that's what that's the philosophy of our organization, that if once you support the artist, everybody benefits eventually you have to then support the ecosystem but we would argue that the you know the predominance of the profit should be for the artist and everyone else wins rather than um but and, and that's just a philosophy we the supports we put in place are to allow the artist come to the best spot they can before they then either work with a major or in independence so that they're when they are walking into those deals and they should if they want to amplify their audiences globally that they're going in with open eyes and and with a, a wealth of knowledge about the value of what they do and how that features within the ecosystem if no one's writing music there are no record labels exactly um, you know so and and that's how we work to balance that out again that's such reminds me of another conversation I once had with I was with I think it was a gallery owner or a gallery agent and he was telling me about how difficult it was financially and you had to pay for this and you had to pay for rent and you had to pay for that and the artist had to have his cut and I thought you know yeah well, I, well <laughs> would there be any of it without it do you know what I mean it's it betrays a sort of a of a mentality but tell me one other thing Angela um do you still play the drums Badly, very badly. Um, I was taught how to play the drums by Murty McCarthy, who played the drums in the Sultans. Sultans of Ping. Yeah, and uh, I then auditioned for a band who will remain nameless, but they had the very good sense after I auditioned to beg their former drummer to come back. <laughs> um, and they went on to do better than they would have had with me. And, and it... It feeds my thinking that the, the music industry is is populated by failed musicians, myself included. But it's an interesting entree in into the whole area, like uh, the, 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 and particularly that you're able to um, to work in an area music related and help out those who who, who are striving to uh, maybe play the drums a tiny bit better. Well, the Sultans, the Sultans, and and the Frank Walters at the time, and the fact that they both kind of got burnt by their majors, that was one of the motivators for me to start. The music really? resource center in Cork, and that was a motivation to start FMC. So it was, I was just kind of a bit annoyed that bands weren't telling each other the pitfalls, and then I just realised they didn't have the time. So that's that was kind of the the backbone of of starting um, the music resource, the Cork Music Resource Center, and then that was a template for FMC. The the kind of the blood and guts of what we do which is an information advice resource and then the showcase festival ireland music week the export office um music Command, they all came as a result of that and listening to the sector and what they wanted and realizing that artists could get to a stage where they could make a living from their artists if we invested um in them getting there and at those key gear change moments where if we weren't there they might have fallen away or it might have taken them longer to get where we we got them and and that template is in theatre it's in writing with the writer centre it's in poetry with poetry ireland and it's about and that's what the sector does it it's not for the people who are already successful but you wouldn't have um the Sally Rooney's and the Fontaines and the Hosiers and 
um, you know, the Paul Meskels if there weren't wasn't an infrastructure to get them to that tip of the iceberg because where they're getting fame and commerce they no longer need the sector but the sector that got them there is the sector that we're fighting the ncfa are fighting for and and in music that's the sector that fnc are fighting for absolutely angela and i think if we can take one thing away from today it is as you said art is not made for free people have to put bread on the table Wherever it arises, please pay for the art. We may be in a scenario, particularly online, where you can't be forced to pay for it, but please take into account what's at issue there. And as I think as Angela has very well articulated, what would the world be without some space for those artists to make their art? Angela Dorgan, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks. I'd like to also thank engineer JJ Vernon on sound. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at at mickcliff. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.